Welcome back, everybody, to My Favorite Chemist. I'm your host, Geraldo. And I'm back. This week's episode of our Pride Summer 2022 is hosted by Cassie Chartier, a fourth year PhD student at Columbia University. We're so excited to welcome her into the MFQC family. For this week's episode, we're raising funds for the Ali Forney Center, whose mission is to provide protection for LGBTQ plus youth against homelessness. The center runs on a 24-hour program, offering not only beds and food, but also job readiness training and a drop-in center for transitional housing. Cassie chose to support this organization because they've seen the homelessness issue in their community over the last few years and really want to support those most vulnerable in the LGBTQ plus community who also experience homelessness. With that, here's our show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of My Fave Beer Chemist's Pride Series. My name is Cassie, and I'm so excited to be guest hosting this week's episode. This week, we will be talking with my friend, Victor. Um, So, Victor, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, This is so exciting. I'm so excited to speak on this podcast. As Cassie said, my name is Victor. My pronouns are he, him. And a bit about my background. So I went to American University in Washington, D.C. for my undergrad. And there I did a dual degree in math and physics. And I'm currently a a Ph.D. student in biophysics at Wall Cornell Medicine. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and like a grand scheme of things sort of scale? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I'm in the biophysics program at Wall Cornell Medicine. Um, and Walker Hill Medicine is actually the like medical school of Cornell University. Um, and then, so kind of unsurprisingly, I guess, all of the PhD programs kind of focus on um, some aspect of like biomedicine or medicine very generally. So I, like pretty much everyone else here, um, am kind of interested in like the molecular mechanisms that underpin um, development of disease. That's kind of generally where I am with my like just general interest in research. But I particularly am interested in studying the molecular mechanisms at like the single biomolecule or single molecule level. So I'm really interested in kind of answering questions about how like single proteins say like misbehave or receive some sort of stimulus and then react to uh, form some sort of like disease phenotype. Very cool. I definitely have some of that in common with you, which is really awesome. So I'm interested because, you know, you said that you did your undergraduate degrees in both physics and math. So I guess in general, what sort of first got you interested in science? And then sort of as a follow-up to that, like how did getting interested in biophysics come about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So when you say interested in science, do you mean like generally interested in science or just like getting into like research. Okay. I guess, Um, I guess both. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I'll answer the first question, I guess, first. So my interest in science kind of came about a little bit as a result of um, me just having immigrant parents, (laughs) you know, when I was a kid and like growing up, going through like middle school and high school, the career paths that they kind of laid out for me were like, you know, doctor or like engineer or like scientist or whatever. Right. And so to that end, um, my dad kind of would buy me like encyclopedias and like books on like literally random subjects in science. And then he would also get me like subscriptions to, I don't know if you've ever like seen these before, but they're like streaming services um, for science only. It's like, 
it was like brain pop back in the day if you remember oh, okay. that and then I've heard of that yeah. yeah 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 and then like discovery and stuff like that so he would like slyly get me these things and be like oh like here's like a little gift for you like do whatever you want with it and so yeah I would literally spend like my like hours as a child just like reading these like random books on like black holes and like genetic it would be like the most random things but that really I think got me into really being interested in like the core of like scientific questions um, and then, you know, all throughout middle school and high school, science was always like my favorite subject. I loved like biology, loved chemistry, loved physics. And then once I got to college, of course, I did math and physics. But so actually, my original major in college, crazily enough, was actually political science. Yeah, and I actually had like a little stint at some point where I was like, oh, I'm going to be like a politician, like I'm so politically active, whatever. But in the end, I, I'm still, you know, I still chose um, science. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and then getting into research. So I was a math and physics major, as I said. So it's kind of weird that I like got into like biophysics and like medicine and all, all that kind of stuff. But actually, I had a really cool um, research experience my sophomore year of undergrad. One of my like favorite professors, honestly, one of my favorite like people ever, Dr. Julia Schiffman at American University. And um, she was actually a math professor. So she was like my linear algebra professor in college. But she actually did like computational oncology research, oh, wow. which I thought was like so cool the first time I heard about it. And when I actually engaged in it with her, I was just like blown away by how like literally she was doing like pure math, basically pure math research and applying it to like, you know, trying to understand breast cancer better. And that to me was like so amazing that you could use, you know, math and like computer science in such an interdisciplinary way to try and help outcomes in medicine. So that I think that really catalyzed my my love for biophysics and like biomedicine and you know all those kind of interdisciplinary fields um, in general. Yeah. Um, I think ever since then I've kind of been like chasing the dream of like trying to apply what I know from like my formal education and like math and physics to trying to better medical outcomes. That's super cool. I feel like yeah. the the more and more I've you know, come along in grad school, I've realized how interdisciplinary chemical biology, biomedicine, biophysics, all of these fields really are. And it really takes like so many different kinds of brains to come together to like solve a problem from a lot of different angles, which is super cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess switching gears a little bit as somebody who, you know, was a student at American University and now is a student at Weill Cornell, what has your experience at both of these institutions been like as a member of the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, so at American, I would say generally it was positive. I feel like it was a pretty moderately sized school. I think the total undergrad population was like 8,000 or something. Um, and I felt a pretty strong LGBTQ community there. Um, a lot of my friends were in the community you know, there was like official clubs that were dedicated by the school that were like dedicated to like promoting the community. And so that was like generally like overall uh, in the entire school, I felt pretty, pretty positive, pretty good. Within the like science departments, though, it, again, it was generally positive, but I didn't really feel that it was like a thing that was like ever talked about, you know, it wasn't something that like was, you know, brought up ever and certainly not like something that was celebrated. Right. So. But generally, I, I never felt like, you know, any overt like discrimination or anything like that. And in general, it was like a, a pretty accepted thing. But again, not, not celebrated, definitely, which maybe subconsciously kind of made me like a bit scared 
you know, to express that part of my personality, not only in like my department, but just like in the scientific community in general. At Wild Cornell, I would say it's similar. In general, again, it's like a super positive experience. I feel like pretty accepted. I feel like I can be like super open about it. But the student community here is significantly smaller. So my PhD class is maybe like uh, 80, 90 people. Oh, well, yeah. that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot compared to mine, but okay. Yeah, but well, that's that's the entire school. So in my actual program, there's like... Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. There's, okay. Yeah, there's, exactly. Yeah. So the, in, in the, all the programs, there's like uh, like total 80 people, but like just in my program, it's like very few. Gotcha. Um, so there isn't really, um, so in the actual graduate school among the PhD students, there's like no dedicated, you know, space for the uh, LGBTQ community, for example. Um, and there's no like affinity groups. Um, so it's not something that's kind of like super dedicated to by the school, you know, um, mm-hmm. whereas at AU, um, it was, uh, which kind of makes sense because it's like a huge undergrad institution and there's a lot of students. With, so it, it does actually make sense. Although I will say on the actual like medical school side, I think there is more of a dedication to it. And I don't know if that's because of the like culture of the different like schools or what, but maybe it's just more accepted in like the medical community than in the scientific community. I don't know, but generally that's how I feel. But again, overall, I would say at both institutions, my experience has been pretty positive. Obviously it's, you know, it's not something that's like super huge in the scientific community, right? Like there's not a, like a, a ton of representation and generally it's not really, you know, being LGBTQ isn't really part of like the scientific ethos or whatever, you know, like, mm-hmm. the, you know, when you imagine a scientist, I guess um, it's like you're, you're not in the LGBTQ community. And again, there's not a lot of representation. And maybe as a result, subconsciously, I'm kind of like sometimes, you know, scared to, you know, express that part of myself again, being like a scientist, a PhD student, um, and just, you know, being a part of the scientific community. But I do think it's getting better, you know, with social media and just like a new generation of scientists coming through. I think there's a bunch more representation nowadays. And yeah, I think it's slowly becoming something that's um, being more celebrated in our community for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that the 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 word choice of like you know it becoming more celebrated is I think the direction that the larger LGBTQ science community like wants to move towards and work towards definitely um, for sure okay so you mentioned social media and funny enough this is how I even came to know you um, mm-hmm. randomly popping up on my for you page but. I took a look at your TikTok page the other day when I was coming up with these questions and noticed that you have over a million likes, which is insane. And so what has inspired you to start making TikToks about science? And then as a follow-up with that as well, I guess, were you ever worried about what, you know, your lab mates or your PI or just like your cohort mates would think, um, you know, if they saw one of your videos pop up on their For You page? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so crazy that you that you mentioned I, I have a million likes because still to me it's like crazy that I have that many. Like every time I look at it, I'm like, this literally isn't real. Like I can't have that many likes. But yeah, it's it's been a really cool experience. And I think um, what kind of initially inspired me to 
to try to communicate science on social media. So I've always kind of been interested in um, some form of science communication. I have over the years, like done like several little bits where, you know, I've appeared on like different shows and like been on different like programs and stuff where I've like talked about science or like presented some sort of concept. I got really into it actually the first summer of my PhD where I volunteered at uh, Rockefeller University actually in their um, undergrad like research experience program. And I had given a lecture on something related to, I think it was uh, the, it was like diabetes in the context of COVID or something. And um, I really loved the the audience. I loved the questions. I loved like presenting the science. I loved like condensing super important concepts that came from like the cutting edge of scientific research, especially something that was was so pertinent as, um, you know, COVID at the time to, you know, a more general audience. And I kind of thought of ways of how I could do this on a larger scale. Um, And at the time, TikTok was becoming, you know, a super big thing. I think around that time, actually, it became like the number one, like, social media platform or something. So, Mm -hmm. and everyone was on TikTok. Everyone talked about it. I was on TikTok. And then I started seeing a few people pop up on my For You page that talked about science, which I thought was so crazy for anything outside of Twitter, because at the time, Twitter was like the only place that I would think that people would like go for, you know, discussions about like proteins or something, you know. So in seeing those, I was like, you know, I'm like a scientist in training, like I am, you know, someone that's super not well represented in science. And I have like a voice and I have things to say about science. And um, yeah, I just, I guess, took a leap of faith and made like one random video that was kind of like meme And I thought it was like really funny. And I posted it and I didn't think it would get like any traction at all or like any views, but it ended up going super viral. Like I woke up the next morning and I was like, why do I have like a hundred thousand views on this like (laughs) random video of me, like standing slow with a pipette or something. (laughs) Yeah. So I think after I saw that I could actually reach people on TikTok, I was kind of inspired to continue making um, similar videos. So, so most of my content is kind of like trying to make um, different like scenarios in science, um, kind of like funny and like applicable to like different trends on TikTok, which I think kind of makes it easier um, to digest for like the general public and maybe like a bit more approachable. So that was my initial goal. Um, more recently, I've started to uh, get into the sphere of actually trying to make videos that um, explain like concepts in science. Um, and that's, I think, what I'd like to move toward in the future for sure. Because again, I'm just super interested in trying to, you know, take concepts from like the cutting edge labs and like cutting edge science and like really trying to bring it to, um, to people who aren't necessarily um, constantly immersed in that kind of cutting edge science yet. To your second question about um, if I thought my peers would, what would they think about um, my TikTok? So I'm constantly anxious about that, actually. Literally, if you you would like open my like, my little section on TikTok where I have like videos that only I can see, there's like so many of them um, that have like gone viral, but I got like anxiety that like they were like too embarrassing or like reflected badly on me or something that I made private. So yeah, I definitely do constantly worry about it because I guess there's a lot of reasons. Um, the main one being that social media isn't really like a super big thing on a lot of scientists' radar. 
Um, I know Twitter has become a super big thing recently, but um, I think Twitter is more on the side of like professional connections and, you know, talking about really important concepts and topics and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, TikTok and Instagram and things like that are more places where, you know, you can kind of like interact with like the general public or people who aren't like scientists or aren't in your field, which I think Twitter is kind of an arena for that. So I was kind of always scared of people, especially like postdocs and like PIs and people who like aren't in in our kind of like age range, judging me for like, I don't know, like wasting my time or like doing something that isn't like directly productive to like either my like science or my um, professional development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of been my like main concern, I guess. Another concern is, is that maybe this is like specific to my institution specifically, but they're super strict with social media at hospitals and like medical centers. And I'm constantly worried that I'm like doing something that like reflects badly on the hospital brand, for example. So I, I always try to like <clears throat> mitigate that in, in my videos for sure. But in general, I think my anxiety about it has gotten better. Um, and the more I talk to people, in my field, because when I first started making videos, I didn't tell anyone, like, this was a secret. Like, I did not tell a single person at my school that I made TikToks. Um, but eventually, I mean, people found out and they were like, oh, like, I saw you on TikTok. So it came out eventually. But now that I've talked to more people about it, it seems like people are generally accepting of it and, you know, actually enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really cool how... I remember one of the first times I saw your videos, I thought it was hilarious. And then I showed my lab and I'm like, you guys, like, you need to see like this person's videos are so funny. Like, and so like, I feel like, you know, in addition to like trying to, I guess, boil down, like you were saying, like cutting edge concepts for, for the general public. It's also really cool that you can reach like that niche scientific community and give everyone who's like maybe having a bad a bad lab day like a little bit of a laugh. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I always find that one of my biggest coping mechanisms is using comedy to like mm-hmm. calm myself down. Definitely. And I feel like it's really cool that you can have the ability to sort of, you know, reach that general public audience but then also reach, you know, the the scientific community and let everyone know that like having a bad day in lab is like something that everybody has. Cause I feel like a lot of times we get boggled down in our own bad data or whatever. So it's a nice reminder that everybody has bad lab days. Um, So I guess we've already talked about this a little bit, but how do you think social media platforms like TikTok serve as a tool for science communication to other scientists and the general public? And I guess sort of as a follow-up to that as well, which we might be able to talk about more in depth is sort of like, what are the pros and cons of this? Because especially like in the context of the pandemic, you know, social media and science communication has become a little bit of a rocky space. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. So yeah, I guess what's your opinion on that? And, you know, what do you think the pros and cons of that are? Sure. Yeah, so I think that in general, social media is net positive in terms of science communication. And I think that the true power of social media is communication to um, people who aren't actually in science. So the general public. There is, of course, immense power in, you know, the Twitter enclaves that PIs and like postdocs and PhD students all communicate their science in. Um, But again, I think definitely that the biggest power of social media is actually, you know, trying to bring down these like crazy jargony concepts 
um, that are coming from the cutting edge of science down to people who aren't in science. And I think I really, really saw that, or at least I saw it emerging during the pandemic for sure, mostly on TikTok, but I did see it definitely on places like Instagram and Twitter for sure, um, even like Snapchat a little bit, um, weirdly. Um, but what I saw was scientists who mostly had never been in a science communication role get on platforms like TikTok or Instagram or Twitter and, you know, just use their expertise to try to explain um, really difficult concepts, you know, that were floating around during the pandemic. Things like vaccine science, you know, mask wearing and why that was important. You know, the, uh, the science of like viral spread and immunology, stuff like that. And these are just like, you know, regular people, regular scientists, again, who never, never been on any sort of social media in a big way or never been a science communicator. But um, we're just trying to like do their part in communicating, communicating these really important concepts to people. Um, and I think, honestly, that was like one of my biggest inspirations for even starting my own TikTok. But um, I thought it was really powerful because in general, I didn't really see that kind of thing coming from institutions at all. So I thought, you know, the companies that were making the vaccines, for example, the companies that were, you know, providing masks, governments, I thought they were doing a good job of actually dispersing things like vaccines and masks um, and other things. But I felt like there was never any like general education, even like basic education about like what exactly, you know, was going on behind the scenes to develop vaccines, for example, or how they even worked. And as a result, I think that did create a lot of distrust among people during the pandemic, um, not only towards vaccines, but you know, towards governments and a lot of institutions. And I think the scientists that got on social media and you know, were, were trying to somehow boil down these things uh, into, into some like medium that, that was digestible for people who weren't in science was, was really powerful. And I think a net positive. Like you mentioned, I think there, of course, were some negatives to it, for sure. There was a lot of, of course, misinformation about it, about the concepts that I just discussed. And um, I think that's kind of a historical thing, though, misinformation throughout all forms of media. And social media isn't immune to that. Um, there will always be, you know, some sort of like misinformation being spread for, you know, some, some benefit, who knows. But um, I think that'll always be true. I think really the only way to, to counter that is having more um, actually credited scientists um, and people who, who are like established and deeply understand the things that they're talking about actually get on social media and other forms of media to, um, to try to like delineate all these concepts, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess to sort of like wrap up that conversation, I know, you know, you said that for the beginning part of your undergraduate that you were majoring in political science and I have, within the last five years or so, become a lot more politically engaged and a lot mm -hmm. more interested in science policy. And so something that, you know, I love to think about is how science communication and uh, I guess a, a deeper expertise in like research science mm -hmm. can really impact science policy. And you know, the pandemic has gotten me thinking mm -hmm. a lot more about that. Right. But yeah, I guess do you see a value in having people who are very proficient at science communication having a, a more powerful role in science policy? Definitely. 
I think that educating the public about things that affect their everyday lives, affect their families, um, affect, you know, their autonomy, things that come out of science, like vaccines, communicating that stuff, I think is extremely important. And again, I think it is a core duty of, of governments to do that kind of thing for their constituents. That's, that's like a really deep belief that I have. And I think that science communication in that regard should be taken a lot more seriously than it is now. Um, like I said, I didn't, I personally didn't see like a super strong effort, at least by the U.S. government. And I'm sure this, this is true of other governments around the world, but I didn't see like a super strong effort to really, you know, ingrain these like really basic concepts in, uh, in the general public. And I think moving forward, that kind of role, which is like, you know, science communicator, should really be taken more seriously and should be like recruited on a lot harder. Yeah. And I mean, I think these people um, who become science communicators, obviously they should, you know, have a deep understanding of science for sure, but they should come from backgrounds where they really deeply studied science. I think they should come from like PhD programs, like MD programs, master's programs. Like these are people who are like deeply, deeply ingrained in science and like, deeply understand it. And obviously with that degree, um, and with that understanding should come, you know, really, really good and, you know, proper compensation for, um, for what that role really entails, which truly is, you know, educating all of the government's constituents in, in things that directly impact them in their everyday lives. Absolutely. Yeah, I cannot agree more. <laughs> yeah. I really hope to see in my lifetime, our, the, the U.S. government shift towards a place that actually appreciates and values scientific knowledge and and research yeah. um and, and i hope that yeah that can better inform policy i think that definitely with the way that the world is going yeah we need that like asap definitely um, yeah and i mean i think in some ways the, the u.s government at least is kind of moving towards that i think in other ways it's maybe moving away but i think in general the net movement is actually toward, you know, uh, a situation where science is way more appreciated and way better communicated, I think. For yeah. sure. Okay, so wrapping up, who is your science role model and why? And you're allowed to have more than one. And also, I might not know who your science role model is, so you might have to tell me mm-hmm. thoughts about them. <laughs> yeah. So I honestly have so many I literally have like a million role models. One of my biggest, though, I think, is a mathematician named Katherine Johnson. She was the um, mathematician at NASA during their like early uh, space flight times. Um, And she would do like all these crazy like trajectory analyses literally by hand. So she would like solve like huge systems of, of differential equations, like all by hand. And just that I thought, you know, that's just like crazy. Literally every time that I like use Python or something to like automatically solve differential equations, I literally think of her because I'm like, wow, like doing all this by hand would just be insane. But, you know, also her being a black woman in like the 50s and 60s working at NASA, working in like a really fundamental, like huge, one of the biggest at the time, like scientific institutions is just like probably equally as crazy and really inspiring to me personally. Um, so definitely one of my biggest uh, one of my biggest role models, you know, not only as a mathematician, definitely as a mathematician, but also uh, as a Black woman who is a mathematician. For sure. Yeah. Love her. I, my younger sister, like, did, like, a whole project about her a couple of years ago. And I was, like, so happy that she chose her of, like, yeah. all the people she could have picked. Yeah. Right, right, right. Amazing person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Another person who um, is a really big role model to me is a person actually that was a former assistant dean of diversity here at Wild Cornell. Um, his name is Dr. Marcus Lambert. He's now the uh, vice president of research strategy actually at SUNY Downstate. But yeah, another really huge black role model for me. I think he was really critical in like my um, early development as a PhD student because he kind of co-led a bunch of the diversity initiatives here at Wild Cornell, which I was a part of. And in general, was just like a really big, you know, driving force in you know me continuing to do science um, as a black person. And generally, is like a person that I, you know, aspire to be. He's he's an amazing scientist, amazing administrator, amazing speaker. If you ever get a chance to, you know, ever go to one of his talks, really recommend that because he yeah, he's a really amazing speaker. That's awesome. Yeah. Other role models I have, honestly, a lot of my role models are like my peers, like my fellow like PhD students, my mutuals on like social media. A lot of those people really inspire me daily, like the science they do, you know, the way that they communicate science, really, really inspirational to me. A few people that I see a bunch on like TikTok and Instagram are, um, um, so there's one person, Astro Biolina. She's an astrobiologist who uh, makes these really amazing, you know, science communication pieces on TikTok, which are like often no more than 30 seconds. But I feel like she just communicates, um, you know, the findings super well and um, really does a good job of, you know, educating people in her field. Another person is Karen, Karen Parada, also another big TikToker um, who does kind of uh, similar, similar science communication videos. Also, um, you know, dabbles in like science comedy, which is really cool to see. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I feel like I definitely relate in terms of like looking up to peers. I feel like in a PhD program, it's hard. It's hard to stay motivated sometimes, especially when you're going through like tough research times or tough personal times or what tough world times. Um, And so, yeah, having that community, community, especially of people who are who look like you and who understand your experience is super, super important. So I think, yeah, like social media is like such a big tool in that regard, because I feel like I've been able to connect with so many more people than I would have had the opportunity to like just within my community here at Columbia. So it's been really nice. And I'm glad TikTok connected me to you. So with that, where can people follow you on social media if they want to hear more from you, connect with you? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, so I'll give you my TikTok first. Um, so embarrassing. I don't even know my own name. I need to go quickly. <laughs> but it is um, at Victor Belay, um, Victor with a K. That's also my handle on Instagram if you want to follow me there. On Twitter, it's reversed. It's Belay Victor, <laughs> stupidly. But um, yep, that's where you can engage with me, follow me. I'd love to connect. Absolutely. For sure. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for coming on, Victor. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Hopefully we can hang out soon. Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And so, yeah, that was another episode of my fave queer chemists pride series. And thanks for listening. Thank you so much to all who donated to week one of MFQC pride summer supporting the LGBT center of rally. We raised $200 for this incredible organization, and we thank you so, so much for your continued support. The GoFundMe for this week's episode, supporting the Alley Forney Center, will close next week on Thursday, July 14. So go and get your donations in before then. 
Thank you so much for your continued support with the show. We hope that y'all are staying safe and healthy out there. Remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQC Pod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Adios. Mm-hmm.